was able to look in the ear and find a piece of sand. And he was able to locate this body 12 miles away. And I guess where I don't ruin this is whether or not he actually finds the killer. Hi, I'm Fred Burton here with our latest pen and sword, and in the studio is Kate Winkler Dawson. Kate has written a book called American Sherlock, Murder, Forensics, and the Birth of the American CSI, and it's published February the 11th by Penguin Random House. Kate, welcome to Pen and Sword Podcast. Thanks for having me back. I appreciate it. Now, Kate, you were here before with your previous book, uh, Death in the Air, which was fabulous. Thank Uh, you. We loved it. I thought it was great. And being an old cop and an old agent, I love these kinds of stories. Now, I must say this, American Sherlock, when you told us about this when you were coming before, I was saying, I really need to get a copy of this because I'm fascinated with this. What is uh, American Sherlock about? Uh, This book, has been such a pleasure to write. And I've always been really interested in the history of forensics. And so I felt like I really wanted to dig into what is right with forensics and what is wrong. And there's quite a bit of both, you know, now and back when it started. But I needed that lens. Who am I going to tell the story through? Because, you know, I write narrative nonfiction, so nonfiction written as fiction. This is about a forensic scientist named Edward Oscar Heinrich, who doesn't even have a Wikipedia page. You can check. (laughs) I still do check. He was this incredible forensic scientist who solved all of these crazy, insane cases that I'm going to try really hard not to ruin for your audience. I do it every with every story I do. I end up ruining the end because I'm so excited about the stories. But he has all of these crazy cases, and he he literally is a Sherlock Holmes. It's amazing. Um, and the techniques that he used. And so it is about how he pioneered forensics starting in about 1910 on the West Coast. Literally, you know, this is when forensics is in its nascent era. And, and you know, that you have all of these really incredible forensic scientists who are building on tools from um, forensic scientists in Europe and making them better and creating new, new tools. And so it's how he saved lives, how he solved cases, and then really how he ruined some lives and how he used some really bad forensics that unfortunately we still use today and why we shouldn't use them and how this all began. So it's for me such a wonderful story because, you know, Oscar Heinrich uh, was a really complicated character and I am very attracted to complicated characters. I do not believe in the white knight. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it, it comes across. I, I read the book in probably uh, three days uh, because I've always been fascinated by forensics. And I can remember being uh, – as a rookie cop, we did our own fingerprint uh, work with the powder at the scenes of a burglary or an auto burglary or whatever. And of course, if if you had a murder or if you had a big bombing or something, when I was an agent, you would have teams actually doing this from the FBI. And and to me, the fascinating part of this is looking back on that through my lens, going back to Berkeley, California in 1933, and you're looking at the development of this and how Oscar Heinrich created these labs and he was the go-to guy in the private sector. I know the book does a great job of these cases 
that Heinrich solved. So what was your favorite case, if you want to talk a little bit about that, that you uncovered in the course of the story? Well, there are a lot. So one of the things that you'll probably pick up on, you know, when you read the book is is with each of these cases, he uses a different tool or something new comes up. I did, or it yeah. changes him. And that's what's really important for me as a main character. And quite frankly, when I saw his archive at the University of California at Berkeley, which is where he taught for many years, he taught criminology. He had more than 100 boxes, so it was overwhelming. If you've ever been to an archive before, 100 boxes is, is unbelievable. Yeah. I went to the archivist and just said, what are your biggest files? And I started there. So there is uh, the Fatty Arbuckle case, which was very well known that at the time. That was fascinating, by that, the way. Yes, and Fatty Arbuckle you know, got a, a really bad rap mm-hmm. and had his life ruined, essentially, thanks to this forensic scientist – and you have a botched train robbery where Heinrich was able to pull more than 20 clues off of one piece of clothing. Probably my favorite was the Bessie Ferguson case, which is, you know, a case of a body part that was – hopefully your audience has a strong stomach. I think sure. they do. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Trust me, they do. They do. Okay. So um, I'm going to really attempt to not ruin this here, but um, Oscar Heinrich was sent by the police – an ear with a piece of scalp attached. Right. And that was it. No other body part. They just said, we're sure this, they didn't even know it was a man or a woman. We're sure this person's dead. Well, no kidding. Yes. <laughs> uh, we need to find the body and we need to figure out who did it. And the cops just kind of said, okay, go. So he searched the ear um, and, and he was able to really create a profile of this woman. It turned out to be a woman. But the key part was, where do you find the body? Because this this body part was found in a muddy marsh, and they searched up and down, and they really couldn't find any other body parts there. So where's the rest of the body? And that'll help identify the victim. And so he was able to look in the ear and find a piece of sand and run a test that only really, especially in the 1920s, only very few people knew how to run. But he knew it because he was a sanitation engineer in another life. And he was able to locate this body 12 miles away. And I guess where I don't ruin this is whether or not he actually finds the killer. I know. And I know. And don't I ruin won't, it, Fred. I, I, I won't. I won't. Because uh, <laughs> I do uh, it too much. <laughs> I, I, I won't ruin the end of that chapter. But I have to say this, that that was fascinating. I, Again, just with my past, the ability to follow that – the forensics, which he developed so much from blood splatter analysis to ballistics to – to the lie detector test, which you know, over the course of time, I have seen, for example, uh, and I'd like to for you to chat a little bit about that because I've seen the polygraph today used in a very good way on threats, for example, threats against cabinet level officials, and I've also seen it used for when we were vetting sources that had information or walk-ins that, that would be talking about a terror plot or whatever. It's intimidating to a lot of people. It, it is extraordinarily intimidating and, I, and I've had polygraphs ran on myself and it's uncomfortable in that seat. And so I think it would be fascinating to discuss a little bit about Oscar Heinrich's use of the lie detector test mm-hmm. and, and what you uncovered in American Sherlock. Well, I think that the case where it was used – 
uh, primarily by a man named John Larson who developed it. The original components of the lie detector were developed by the man who invented Wonder Woman with her truth lasso, Charles Marston. And John Larson, who was a fledgling cop at the time, developed him even further. And Heinrich really thought it was appropriate to use on this case of a man who was suspected but not yet convicted of kidnapping and murdering a Catholic priest. And so when it was used on this man, again, it falls under the the dubious use of the lie detector, which is, you know, the man later on turned out to most likely have mental health issues, schizophrenia, most likely. And that is one of the red flags. I mean, I think you know is, you know, when you put somebody on a lie detector test, there are so many other factors, Mm -hmm. medication, you know, their mood. Do they have a mental illness, you know, personality disorders, all this stuff that can affect the results. In the 1920s, it seemed very clear cut to uh, John Larson, who developed it. Um, August Vollmer, who was the kind of top cop in Berkeley who promoted it, and Oscar Heinrich, all three of them felt very strongly that this was cut and dry. You're either a liar or you're not. And we know now that that's not really the case. But it is very intimidating. And when you read my description of the effect it had on the man who was strapped into you know, this apparatus, and it was the first time it had ever been used in a criminal case – was petrified. I don't know how any of the cops felt when they were in the room because really it was very confusing. It was scribbling and black paper and the ink was everywhere. It, you know, it was this sort of very <laughs> rudimentary right. version of what we think of the lie detector now. But it certainly served its purpose. It rattled the suspect. But, you know, in all fairness, the suspect had been rattled pretty well to begin with. Yes. And I, I have seen it used uh, to get to the truth or, you know, it, it's another tool in the toolkit combined with everything else you're doing to, yeah. to vet information. And, and surprisingly, there's a high degree of credibility placed upon the use of the polygraph, especially in the intelligence community when it comes to the vetting of sources. But it's been my experience, if you fast forward to today with what Oscar Heinrich in, in that era looked at, it really boils down to the capability of the operator too. Absolutely. And and most of the operators are very good interviewers and very good investigators to begin with. Right. And much like most journalists or you know basic cops asking questions at times, one of the questions I had to ask is: Was Oscar Heinrich just? And I've been around people like this in my career that are just different. They they look at a problem differently, meaning. Most of us go about our job in a very methodical kind of process. It seemed to me that he just looked at problems differently. What do you think the psychology of the man was as he was looking at these cases? When I was talking to a friend of mine who's a psychology professor at the University of Texas, I was describing his archive. And his archive really defines to me who he was. And he saved everything you can think of. He saved every case file. He had three loaded weapons. I had to petition UC Berkeley to have the the archive cataloged finally after 65 years. It was just so large and nobody had ever asked for it to be open. And so there were these three weapons that were loaded that the uh, UC Berkeley police had to come and remove the firing pins because <laughs> obviously they didn't want me handling any of that. And there were locks of hair. I mean it was really incredible what he had. But everything had a purpose. And what I learned about him, you know, his father had a tragic ending. 
when Oscar was a boy. Yeah. And that all of this played into this incredible amount of anxiety he had over control. And he was a very, very controlled man. So to my psychology friend said, for sure, OCPD, you know, so obsessive compulsive personality disorder, Mm -hmm. which is where the productive hoarding came in. So I found just boxes full of journals that he kept for decades, for most of his life. And it, it was literally he sat down daily and wrote every single thing that he spent, bread, 50 cents, uh, milk, 5 cents, whatever it was. It was so meticulous that it was obsessive, absolutely. And I think it stems back to his childhood. So I had a friend of mine who said when I was describing him, do you think that he became obsessive like this because of his job, because he needed to kind of go into a crime scene and gather all this information and sort it in his head. Like, okay, I can run this test on this, this test on that. Here are my capabilities. Here's what I need to look up because I don't know, mm-hmm. you know, what tests to run here. Did he become like that? And I said, no, he took this job because he has this already. And he clearly needed a job to satisfy that. He needed something to occupy himself. But really, he could walk into a crime scene and he could figure out if he could run a test to discover the compound, you know, what what the sand is made of or, um, you know, a a ballistics test or toxicology or bloodstain pattern analysis or fingerprinting. He knew how to do all of this. Right. And we just don't have people like that that are sort of these generalists. And I think it was, you know, not a sickness, certainly not a mental disease, but – Otherwise, I think he just would have gone crazy. I think he would have been bored. He would have been destructive. He Mm -hmm. might have had the same tragic ending his father had. Right. Thank goodness. I mean, I always think, you know, this must have driven him crazy. He even, he would write in a journal when he napped every day, this journal for like 30 or 40 years. When he woke up, he charted his own urine levels for several years. (laughs) And then he actually journaled. He would write in his journal when he was journaling like currently journaling at eight. So that is someone who is detailed. A little bit different. Oriented. But thank goodness. And I think of myself every day because I had so much information to sort of rebuild his life. Oh, yeah. And who he was. And he was lost in history, which was just too bad. We'll get back to our conversation in just a minute. But I wanted to talk to you first about Stratfor Worldview. When people ask me what we do here at Stratfor, I always try to say that we make sense of the world. Uh, look, I've been here now going on almost 20 years, and I've had lots of opportunities to go elsewhere. I've uh, been lucky enough to have cobbled together a few books, but I can say this, that when I sit around the analyst table every morning and watch uh, some of our analysis being put together, I think people uh, would be surprised. And I think that for those of you who really want to see why uh, the world works the way it does, without the bias, without the spin, without the inside the beltway kind of uh, takeaways, uh, I would encourage you to take a look at what we do. Let me make you a special offer. Go to stratfor.com slash Fred Burton and take a look at what we do every day. I don't think you'll be disappointed. I really just applaud you for this effort. I mean, I have been in this business since 1981 and I was a criminal justice major in college and and you look at um, this kind of study and I know this is going to be a huge hit, yeah. uh, especially in the law enforcement, public safety, crime scene tech 
world because I've I've already tweeted out a, a jacket to a, a bunch of my friends that I know and they said, oh, I can't wait to read it because oh, you know people hunger for this and I think there's a tremendous amount of interest today on just CSI kind of work and yeah. murder mysteries and and how we got there and it, I used to you know think about this when I was back in the day taking fingerprints from crime scenes and you might have recalled why we did it that way or who developed the actual process but what I think you've done with American Sherlock is he Oscar Heinrich was the center of gravity for so much of the forensics that we rely upon right. today and we have relied upon throughout history to put people in jail or, or send people to the death penalty, right. good, bad, or indifferent. Right. And he sent in one year, he sent six different men to death row in San Quentin. That's a lot. That's a lot. To Do you handle. think that bothered him? I think he was – he had to be confident in his results. So I don't think so because I think he, he felt um, you know, that, that that would be serving justice. I think when he felt badly was when he couldn't solve cases. And there are kind of you – know, there's one in two – one or two cases in here right. that really stumped him and upset him. He very rarely, even though he was clearly wrong in certain cases in a couple in here also in this book – he very rarely would admit it. And that's, again, sort of a – we see that we see that now with yeah, some of these yeah. innocence cases that are coming out and the prosecutors are still right. in denial. And so what I take away from the book because I always – you know, I talk to my editor when I'm pitching a book and I say, I want a call to action or what what is the thing that needs to change? What does this teach us and what's the thing that needs to change? When you walk away from the book, you very clearly understand that – there are many, many, many poorly trained, quote-unquote, forensics experts in this country. And one of my favorite reporters is a woman named Pam Koloff, and she writes for the New York Times Magazine. She had a fantastic article about bloodstain pattern analysis. She was able to take a 40-hour course, that's it, 40 hours, in Oklahoma and qualify after that course and passing the test as a bloodstain pattern analysis expert. Wow. How is that even possible? And the issue that we have in our country is there's no real regulations that go state by state, and there's guidelines here and there. And so, you know, what I walk away with is that with forensics, you can't lean as heavily as we thought. We really have to lean on good detective work, people who are unbiased, really digging into stories, not dismissing suspects or not honing in on certain suspects for. Um, the reason that, you know, we're running out of time or really media pressure is what I see the most. And then, you know, we end up with these wrongful convictions. I think that's a very good point, Kate. Yeah. And I've seen that too and especially in the international arena where we would go overseas to investigate a bombing or a plane crash or a terrorist attack. And trust me when I say this, there there is in some places just zero threshold other than we know this person did it. But I think you raise a very good point with that. You know, one of the things that you see with Oscar Heinrich is the huge amount of confidence that he has in these forensic techniques that are just starting. Right. I mean, literally, he was either the first or one of the first handful of cases where someone testified in bloodstain pattern analysis. And it has essentially been discredited now. Again, it's with a lot of these forensics, including DNA, you know, you can certainly 
walk away having a feeling of what happened and being moderately sure what happened. But you still, the detectives or the investigators still have to do the footwork to create a case. Mm-hmm. I remember talking to a prosecutor who said she would rather, always rather have a very strong circumstantial case instead of having just DNA evidence. Yeah, I think that's very well said. I, I don't disagree with that as, as well when, when you're trying to build a case. I I saw an explanation once with an individual, an agent that kept stacking up pins yeah. and uh, said, if you take this one pin, this one fact, it doesn't really mean a lot. But then as you throw these, you keep adding to the pile and the next thing you know, you've got a stack of yeah. 20 or so pins. It's unbreakable. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, but I think D- I would want to know your opinion on this. Is the the I'm sure you've heard this phrase, the CSI effect, yeah. on juries because that's what I thought of when I was writing this book. You know, the idea that you have these juries who have been watching CSI, I know the TV show, which is and right. you know they walk into a courtroom to serve on a jury in a criminal case, and they're looking for razzle dazzle sure. and DNA everywhere, and and you a lot of times just don't get that. It seems to be a, a much higher bar for the prosecutor or the defense attorney because of this TV show. You know, these juries that think they understand forensics based on a 45-minute show. Oh, without a doubt. I think that uh, you can even look at that today with some of these investigations that are carried out. And look, I I think people are are fascinated by this kind of technology and everybody's looking for what's next. And based on your research in Oscar Heinrich, and American Sherlock, what do you think is next on the technology front? Because I, I look at things like facial recognition right. and AI, but, right. but but what's next? What's the next – or what would Oscar Heinrich be looking at today if he was still alive? Neuroscience in, in the what courtroom. Way? Well, we are seeing now a uh, an, an increasing amount of neuroscience evidence that's being entered into court cases so, um, you know, when a, a defendant comes in, and, and I think we see a lot of this in death penalty cases and capital cases when they're coming up for appeals, and it is the brain scan or the CT scan, you know, whatever, that is entered, and uh, there are claims that because of an abnormality in the defendant's brain that these are mitigating circumstances they should um, not be put to death. They shouldn't be on death row or they should be released or have a lighter sentence or committed in some different way other than prison. And it's very scary because what we know about the brain now is is such a small amount. It's like 1% when I talk to a neuroscientist about what we know about the brain and whether or not we can blame the brain. Is it a mitigating circumstance, how your brain is structured, or if you had brain damage when you were younger? I'm bringing this up because I'm on the podcast that I'm doing. One of them is is about literally about – it's called the brain defense. Um, it's a really dangerous precedent, and I think that probably Oscar Heinrich would have really latched onto this and been fascinated with it. No doubt. And might have used it for, for good or for bad. I mean, you know, we just don't sure. know. But any new tool that can distract – a jury, I think both sides will will take. Unfortunately, and, and I mean, exploit. Well, and what you'll find in this book too that is so relevant now that I'm I'm sure you can talk about also is the battle of experts. Right. If I'm the defense attorney and you're the prosecutor, you can bring a toxicologist in, and I can bring my own in, and they'll disagree with each other, mm-hmm. and then the jury's left with saying, "Uh, what? 
Yeah. What do we do? Well, I don't even know what to do. Yeah. You know? Who do we believe? Who here? do we believe? And, right. you know, they cancel each other out. Sure. Or a friend of mine's a defense attorney who is now retired. And he said many times we would just bring in an expert not based on his experience. He would have sort of the minimal amount of experience that we wanted. But we would bring him in specifically because he was a good talker. Hmm. And Heinrich was not always a good talker. He would sort of you know, be a little too scientific mm-hmm. and it would go over the jury's heads and juries these days don't like it. And juries in the 1920s don't like it. And he might've been right. But if you are not a good translator for your expertise, jury's going to ignore it or dismiss it or believe it, even though they don't have a true understanding. And then what are we left with, with evidence? If that is the main evidence, if the forensics is the main evidence, that's well, why I kind of come back to that circumstantial case, yeah. the pins, the unbreakable yeah. you know, pins of circumstantial evidence. And ideally, you have all of it. Yeah, in a perfect case. Uh, but you know what? It's been my experience, Kate, that whenever you're looking at some of these complex cases or investigations, you, you never really have 100 percent. Right. And you kind of build up and build up and build up until you got that preponderance of evidence that might indicate that. And then, but that's thorough work. That's I, thorough investigative I, work. I agree with you. Right. And then, of course, there's icing on the cake in the community, in the law enforcement community. That, oh my goodness, if the FBI lab comes back with a hit that puts that person at that scene, then that's a slam dunk case. Right. And so there is still that perception at a working level that, at the end of the day, if you've got forensics to kind of support that investigation. Absolutely that you'll get there. Now, tell me a little bit about your podcast. Well, the podcast is very much in the same vein of, of my books. I'm just not going to be able to ever break out of this, uh, this cycle, <laughs> this, huh? this unfortunate cycle I'm in. Really, it is science mixed with murder, which is the best kind of murder is sciencey murder and stories that we can learn from. What's it called? Tenfold More Wicked. And it's a quote. Love from, that title. Yeah, thank you. It's a quote from uh, Jekyll and Hyde. Jekyll describing when he became Mr. Hyde and sort of, you know, like how yeah. much more wicked he is. Tenfold. And I, tenfold. And I am particularly interested in the duality of, of, you know, people and, and men and women and, and it's particularly kind of in the criminal setting. Season one is, um, about a man who was a genius. And who was an expert in linguistics in the eight in the nineteenth century, and was also a killer, a horrible killer. Wow! And how uh, the people in the nineteenth century could not understand how someone could be so wicked and so brilliant at the same time. Mm-hmm. And when it came time to finally, after thirty years, he's finally caught and execute him. You have these um, luminaries in New York in the 19th century, like Mark Twain and Horace Greeley defending him and saying, wait, this guy's far too brilliant to execute. So let's save him and see if we can harness his brain for good instead of evil. Unbelievable. And is he a psychopath? And what makes a psychopath? Um, I have his family who is still living on the same farm where he lived, you know, uh, 150 years ago. That's amazing. Yeah, the family part of this is really important to me. So I have the families in each of these seasons. One of the other seasons is about uh, some very famous Scottish serial killers who killed people to then uh, sell their bodies to an anatomy professor. And what I talk about here is the importance of body donation and why – Body donation to medical schools has gone down in contemporary times, and it's dangerous because you're graduating doctors who have never worked on a cadaver. I go to the body farm. 
which right. is at, at Texas, uh, Texas State. State, which yeah. is incredible. It is. And I talked to, um, you know, the, the man there, the director who runs it about how they use their donated bodies to solve crimes. The FBI's right. there, everybody, you know, all of these national law enforcement agencies come to the body farm. They were just preparing for, the FBI to come in and they were going to set up a home on fire. They had built this house and they had, of course, cadavers in there so they could sh- teach the FBI what happens to bodies when they're caught, sure. you know, in, in a burning home. So hopefully the storytelling and the creepy music and taking us back to 19th century Scotland, but also really talking about why these stories are important and what we can learn about true crime. I love telling these stories, what they ate you know, in Gilded Age, New York, how Oscar Heinrich, when he was a child, was visited by the Salvation Army, Santa Claus. And that and, stuck with him. And it stuck with him and, and why it stuck with him and sort of sure. what poverty was like for him. And that all informs us of, of what that time period, what the 20s were like in America. And so, you know, I, I just – those are the stories I love to dig into. Well, you've done a great job with Thank that. Thank you. And, and Tim, that is high praise indeed to your well, audience um, because I know you're a discerning reader, so I really appreciate that. <laughs> well, tenfold more wicked. I can't wait to start listening to that. I'm I'm probably now going to have to sleep with two guns under my pillow after, <laughs> after listening to that, Kate. Uh, but um, okay, now, February 11th, Penguin Random House is coming right. out with the book. Yep. American Sherlock Murder, Forensics, and the Birth of the American CSI by Kate Winkler Dawson. Trust me when I say this, you won't be disappointed with the story. Thank you for being here today, Kate. Thanks, Fred. And I'm Fred Burton. And if you would like more information about our author series with the pen and sword, please visit stratford.com slash subscribe. <laughs>